I'm Farai Chidea, and you're listening to Our Body Politic. At Our Body Politic, we bring you news by and for the super demographic of women of color, with everyone invited to join us. We've been hearing from you, our listeners, including your financial concerns and worries about the state of politics. In this show, we'll cover the vice presidential debate and talk about all the people impacted by President Trump's COVID diagnosis, including his staff right inside the White House. Some other things we're following this week. The Trump administration canceled negotiations on a stimulus package meant to provide Americans some relief from the economic burdens of the pandemic. The former police officer in Minneapolis who knelt on George Floyd's neck, killing him, posted a $1 million bond and was released this week. He's charged with second-degree murder, third-degree murder, and manslaughter. Puerto Rican Governor Wanda Vasquez endorsed President Donald Trump, saying the president is the candidate who, quote, represents and thinks about Puerto Ricans in their most difficult time, end quote. Vasquez is a pro-statehood Republican. She urged Puerto Ricans living in the states to go vote. Now, Puerto Ricans on the island cannot vote for president, but those in the 50 states and Washington, D.C. can. Polling data from Equis Research, a Democratic Latino research firm, shows that about two-thirds of voters from Puerto Rico who were registered in Florida disapprove of Donald Trump. And in transnational news, a survey of 5,000 adults conducted last July in five countries, the U.S., U.K., Brazil, Germany, and India, found we're getting pretty bad at talking to each other. The Dialogue Project research report conducted with Morning Consult found some data about the dialogue divide, the inability for people to have civil conversations with others who disagree with them. In the U.S., they found that politics, race, ethnicity, and gun laws are the three hardest topics for Americans to talk with each other about, respectfully. Here at Our Body Politic, we bring you both the difficult conversations and also ones that inspire you, empower you, and lift you up. Thanks for tuning in. Now let's get to it. This is a season of first, and this week was no exception. For the first time, a Black and South Asian woman graced the debate stage as a major party nominee for vice president. I'm talking about Senator Kamala Harris, of course. On the other side of the plexiglass was Vice President Mike Pence. Here to talk to us about the debate and what America faces next is Representative Barbara Lee of California. Her district covers the East Bay in Northern California, including Oakland, Berkeley, and other parts of Alameda County. Lee has been serving in Congress since 1998. She's the co-chair of the Policy and Steering Committee and chair of a task force on poverty, among other things. Representative Lee, welcome to Our Body Politic. Thank you for, I am very happy to be with you today. So what did you think of this historic vice presidential debate? And especially, you know, is it important for voters to see a Black and South Asian woman on that stage? Absolutely. I think Senator Harris showed how she can bring people together and help unify the country. Uh, it was a clear contrast. Uh, and just in terms of having uh, a woman of color as our vice president and to see how uh Vice President Pence kept trying to force her to answer his questions was totally disrespectful. And I think that the public got a clear understanding of what women of color have had to and have to deal with. Uh, And in spite of the arrogance and arrogant behavior we saw, that uh, she still rose 
to the occasion because she was who she is and she is a very authentic person. What do you think that your constituents want from the next president and the next vice president of America? My constituents, I know, want first their health care. And we know that uh, Donald Trump is trying to take away health care through repealing the Affordable Care Act at the Supreme Court. But also, unfortunately, the, the gap in income in terms of income inequality and racial inequality is very glaring. And so my constituents, I know, want resources and strategies and initiatives to help lift people out of poverty. And thirdly, climate change. We see with the wildfires in California right next door uh, surrounding us. Uh, We're in the midst of um, a pandemic upon a pandemic upon a pandemic. I briefly lived in your district about 15 years ago, but I think about how much more expensive the East Bay has gotten. And I think also about the tremendous loss of Black home ownership during the last Great Recession and potentially during this era. What can be done at the federal level and other levels to ensure that Black homeowners and Black families still have a stake in mixed-income communities like the ones that you represent? We have to first put a stop to evictions and make sure that uh, our unsheltered people have access to safe and decent housing. That's one piece of the housing crisis here. We have to raise the level of income and make sure African-Americans have access to high, good-paying jobs, and then also make sure that the banks and the financial institutions have mortgages that match the income level uh, so that they can purchase these homes, because it is a tragic moment to see in such an area of enormous wealth to see such poverty and such uh, inequality in my district. Congresswoman Lee, thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much. Nice being with you. In the presidential debate last month, the moderator, Fox News anchor Chris Wallace, was widely panned for how he failed to enforce debate rules between the candidates. Susan Page of USA Today was viewed as doing a better job with the recent vice presidential debate. Moderating is a tricky, delicate, and tough business. My next guest knows that well. Amna Nawaz moderated a presidential debate among the Democratic candidates back in late December. She's a senior national correspondent at PBS NewsHour, a Peabody Award-winning reporter, and has worked at ABC and NBC News. We spoke to her the day after the debate between Vice President Mike Pence and Senator Kamala Harris and asked what her biggest takeaway was. Well, I'll I'll tell you this. I've been putting together a voter panel, a bipartisan voter panel, people from all over the country getting together to watch the debate with me and then kind of share their feelings and their reactions. And we watched the first presidential debate together. And that was a catastrophe. And there was unanimous sort of agreement on the fact that they learned nothing. They were frustrated. They thought it was a waste of time. The bar was so low going into last night that everyone was kind of pleasantly surprised. There was generally candidates answering the questions. There was generally civil discourse. There was generally an attempt to pull information from the candidates for the purpose of informing the people before they go vote. And I think if you go back to what the debate is supposed to be all about, it adhered kind of closer to what the intent is. That said, 
I don't think it changed any minds. You had candidates largely speaking to the people who already support them. Don't forget, four million people have already cast their ballots. You know, the conversations that the candidates are having right now, both the presidential and the vice presidential, I think they're largely just speaking to the folks that they need to make sure get up and get out to vote. And people are kind of stuck in their camps on their own sides of the spectrum. Yeah, you could definitely hear the two candidates, not surprisingly, speaking to their base and not necessarily trying to cross over, but so much. Um, I want to talk about race and gender a little bit more. There's a new report from Time's Up Now, the political organization advocating for an end to discrimination in the workplace, and it found that the announcement in August of Senator Harris as the Democratic candidate for vice president was met with more racist and sexist stereotyping in the media than coverage of the 2016 vice presidential nominees. Um, On the Twitters, I was live tweeting the debate, I saw a lot of people commenting on how Senator Harris had to kind of thread this needle of being assertive, but not too assertive, because as a woman of color, a woman of color that was too assertive was going to be called nasty things. Is there a different standard for women of color in politics, and how did that play out in the debate? There's definitely a different standard. I mean, that is an objective observation. And that's not just true in politics. That's true really across American institutions, right? I I would say it's true in in journalism as well. You know, the, the nomination of Senator Harris is historic, obviously, for all the reasons we've all been talking about. And I think because of that, so much of the coverage just around her nomination and in, in the weeks since has focused on her gender and on her race and on her ethnicity and her background. And, and that's important. I think that, need, that needs to be done at the same time when all of that conversation takes up the coverage, there's less time and space for coverage about her professional record and about her political background and about how she would lead and how she has led in the past. And so that is a trade-off because we're at this historic moment. And that conversation has to be kind of balanced. I think there's a lot of nuance in there that people who live in communities of color or who are people of color have long been talking about. These are conversations we have all the time, but the general American public, and in particular white America, has not. And so it challenges a lot of the norms of how we talk about things. I think it challenges a lot of people's comfort levels with how we talk about things. Sometimes people go back into the the default of the sexist tropes that we know have plagued female candidates, both Republican and Democratic in the past, the racist tropes that we know plagued President Obama, the birtherism, the racism. It's something you mentioned Twitter. Quite frankly, I see all the time. I mean, I think back to the presidential primary debate that I moderated. There was a moment in which I had to interrupt Senator Sanders because he wasn't answering the question I asked him. The responses I got on social media had very little to do with the substance of the question. A lot of them had to do with the color of my skin or the fact that I was a woman. Let me ask about a very specific topic. What did we hear in the debate about the Supreme Court and about abortion? So interestingly, in the voters I've talked to since 2016 and on, one of the things that even folks who didn't necessarily agree with President Trump's rhetoric or even largely with his policies, uh, they voted for him because of this one issue. Interestingly, last night with the voter panel we had, we had a young guy who's a college senior who comes from a family of Republicans who is considering for the first time voting for a Democrat because he so firmly disagrees with what he's seen from President Trump. And last night, after hearing both candidates talk about the Supreme Court and talk about abortion, he said, you know what, I think I might be voting for the Republican ticket this year. 
And when I asked him why, he said it's because of the courts. I, I like the way that Vice President Pence talks about the issue. I like the way he holds this up as, um, you know, something that needs to be fought for, that needs to be protected. A- and that one issue was enough for this young, very smart, very informed, very engaged man to say that that could sway my vote. Amna Nawaz, it is so great to talk to you. Thank you so much. Thank you. That was Amna Nawaz, a senior national correspondent at the PBS NewsHour, who was also the first Asian American to moderate a presidential debate. I'm Farai Chidea, and you're listening to Our Body Politic. Now it's time for Sipping the Political Tea with Erin Haynes. Haynes is editor-at-large at the 19th News and our political contributor here at Our Body Politic. Welcome, Erin. You know, Farai, it's good to be with you again. Uh, it seems like it's been a year, but it's only been a week. So much going on. I know, right? Like uh, news about all the job losses. 865,000 women who left the workforce last month. Can you tell us a little bit about the racial and gender implications of that? Well, I, I mean, it's huge news. And, and I am so glad that you brought this up, Farai, because that could have gotten lost in uh, the news last week of, of the president's coronavirus diagnosis. But but the, the reality is that there are also millions of Americans who are living with this uh, virus, whether they ever get sick or not, right, from an economic standpoint. And that includes, we know, women who are not only the majority of the electorate, but they're also the majority of the population, the majority of the U.S. workforce, and the majority of the people that are being impacted by and responding to coronavirus. Uh, this also does have racial implications. More than 300,000 of those women were Latinas. Uh, I think something like almost 60,000 of those were Black women. And we know that the challenge uh, for a lot of those women was the childcare piece, which frankly should be uh, considered part of our economic infrastructure. Like we should have learned that in the pandemic. Uh, but I, I think that that's something that clearly has been brought into focus uh, in the midst of, of, of this um, this public health crisis. Uh, we also have a childcare crisis in this country. Women are struggling to maintain jobs and or careers uh, while also trying to educate children, probably virtually. There's no such thing as a hybrid job. So hybrid learning doesn't really mean a lot to, you know, the women who are the primary caregivers, not only of of little people, but also of elderly people uh, at the same time. So many of these women are in like, uh, you know, what we know as the sandwich generation. And so juggling all those responsibilities while trying to hold down a a job um, is it means that a lot of, of women are either unemployed or underemployed in this moment. Yeah, I mean, you have talked at the 19th about this being the first female recession. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, I mean, and so much of that has to do with women's ability to remain in, in the workforce. You you think back to 2008, uh, the Great Recession of 2008. It was women who pulled this country uh, out of, of that Great Recession uh, by, you know, given their ability to kind of get back in the workforce and get the economy going. That is something that may not happen uh, this time around because of the complications around child care that this pandemic has created. Uh, something that we say a lot uh, in this pandemic or that we used to say, you know, getting the way back machine to the beginning of this crisis, a thing that we used to say is that we're all in this together. But that is not the approach that this country takes, uh, especially to the child care piece. You've also written at the 19th about the gender differences in polling. What are we seeing there? 
Well, I mean, listen, we are less than a month out uh, from this election, only a few t- Tuesdays left until, well, I should say election day for Rye, but, you know, just to, condi- con- to continue to condition the listeners, uh, we may not know the results of the election on election day, but the day uh, when when um, voting is, is happening uh, across the country, uh, but voting is already underway. And what we know is that the story in the home stretch of this general election is the story of the gender gap. Poll after poll after poll shows just a, a huge gap with women skewing towards uh, Vice President Biden, uh, former Vice President Biden at this point. And a lot of that is driven, again, by the pandemic. The pandemic is absolutely political for women because this is part of their daily lived reality. They are, um, you know, thinking about this from a range of perspectives, both economic and public health. Add to that the national reckoning where you've got so many women of color having to talk to their children in this moment about uh, you know, issues of issues of race and inequality and injustice. Uh, all of these things are taking a toll on women and, and, and women are taking the issues of the pandemic with them into the ballot box this year. Yeah, I mean, I can't help but think about some research that I did last election around about suburban white women being kind of the swing vote within the swing vote. They change um, presidential party preference every one to two cycles. So for the past 40 years have not gone three times in a row for the same party. Um, I mean, None of us has an absolute crystal ball, but it does it seem like white suburban women, among others, are trending for the Democratic Party this time around? It, it does, uh, which is why, you know, you have uh, President Trump tweeting about the suburbs, right? I mean, like he's speaking, he's attempting to speak to women and specifically to white women talking about violence in, you know, in suburbs, which you know, is not a real thing, but, but um, you know, that, that kind of racial playbook that, that we know that the president, uh, you know, relied upon to get elected in 2016 and, and uh, is, is trying to use again, although the climate certainly is very different than it was four years ago, I think. Um, he knows that, that he needs to shore up women and that he does not have a path to victory without them. Thank you so much, Erin. Great to have you on. Great to be with you. Let's see what happens next week. Every week, we bring you an update about COVID and how the pandemic is continuing to impact communities of color around the country. President Trump was released from Walter Reed Hospital three days after he announced on Friday, October 2nd, that he and the First Lady had been diagnosed with COVID-19. Medical experts have warned his release may be premature, as patients often take a turn for the worse in the second week of illness. This week, the Centers for Disease Control updated its coronavirus guidance to say that in, quote, limited, uncommon circumstances, unquote, the virus can spread even between people who are more than six feet apart. That can happen especially in enclosed and poorly ventilated spaces. The CDC reiterated that we can protect ourselves by staying six feet away, wearing a mask that covers your nose and mouth, and staying home when sick. The Trump administration has refused to accept the CDC's help contact tracing people who might have gotten exposed to the virus at the White House. At the Rose Garden Supreme Court announcement, staffers were some of the only people wearing masks. At least two resident staffers have contracted the virus. 
the nearly 100 people who cook, clean, and maintain the residence for the president and his family are now required to wear full PPE at work. They are primarily people of color. Some are older and more vulnerable to complications from coronavirus. Meanwhile, the Food and Drug Administration has issued new guidelines to ensure that a coronavirus vaccine will be safe for the American public. The stricter guidelines will extend the time participants are monitored after receiving a vaccine and push back the vaccine's possible release date. Rick Bright, the federal whistleblower formerly in charge of overseeing vaccine development, resigned from the National Institutes of Health on Wednesday. In a statement, his lawyer said he, quote, can no longer sit idly by and work for an administration that ignores scientific expertise, end quote. Bright claims he was reassigned to NIH after questioning the use of the anti-malaria drug hydroxychloroquine to treat COVID-19, an ineffective treatment touted by President Trump. Only a few days after students in New York City returned to school in person for the first time since March, schools in several zip codes in Queens and Brooklyn had to be closed again due to rising coronavirus cases there. With more than a million students, New York City's is the largest school district in the United States. A quarter of that student population is Black, 16% is Asian, and 40% are Hispanic. A poll conducted in July by the Washington Post and George Mason University showed that 57% of white parents thought it would be safe to send their children back to school for in-person learning, compared to only 21% of Black and 27% of Latino parents. This week in our public health segment of the show, a look at how racial resentment affects the health of white Americans as well as all other Americans. Dr. Jonathan Metzl is professor of sociology and psychiatry at Vanderbilt University, where he's also director of the Center for Medicine, Health, and Society. He studies public health policy and wrote a book called Dying of Whiteness about how the racial hierarchy in the U.S. impacts both white people and people of color in this country. Dr. Jonathan Metzl, welcome to Our Body Politic. Thanks so much. It's great to be here. So we had you scheduled to come on the show a little later in the season, but then it happened. Uh, The president got COVID. On Monday, October 5th, he tweeted, don't be afraid of COVID. Medical professionals say we should be extremely careful to do things like wear masks, which the president has, to say the least, a sort of ambivalent relationship to. And um, tell us how all of this relates to the central thesis in your book, Dying of Whiteness. In a way, what we're seeing is the living embodiment of of the thesis of my book, I feel. This idea that basically the privileged white male indestructible body um, itself is immune um, and that basically uh, it kind of overlooks all of the the sacrifices, all of the people who have gotten sick along the way, all of the privileges afforded to someone who was air-vacced to a hospital with 30 doctors and four experimental drugs and tens and hundreds of thousands of dollars of treatment, um, who then is kind of acting like he himself is kind of um, empowered 
um, is for me just exactly the, the thesis, uh, particularly this idea that everybody else is going down with the ship, but that he he's um, he's somehow transcendent. So it, it's really been a, an incredibly, incredibly tragic, I think, week for this country that needs to be fighting this pandemic, but also just the kind of obscene extension of, of what, what dying of whiteness is all about. Tell us a little bit more about what whiteness means in the context of this medical crisis and this pandemic. Right. Well, in my work, I, I look at whiteness not so much as a biological or genetic category, but as a hierarchical category. This idea that basically um, whiteness is a position that is atop a kind of a, a, atop a particular hierarchy um, that is itself in kind of rejecting its kind of anti-immigrant, anti-government, pro-gun, acts by its own set of rules, um, and really is is individualized as opposed to caring about the public health of the nation. And I've done research on rejecting the Affordable Care Act, on um, defunding schools, on allowing guns anywhere and everywhere in certain red states. And again and again, liberal-minded people would say, well, at this point, when they themselves are dying, they're going to wake up. But I think what people overlook is that the goal is not public health. It's not the health of the nation. Um, what the goal is to maintain this hierarchical idea of whiteness. And so if you see what's happening as the maintenance, you know, kind of maintaining this hierarchy, hierarchy, all these seemingly crazy actions make sense. I've spent years as a field reporter, which have included covering people across the ideological spectrum in 2016, both different types of Trump voters and different types of Clinton voters and people who didn't like either of them, covering um, active white nationalists and people who had, um, you know, more subtle forms of xenophobia. Um, And when people talk about politics as people voting against their self-interest, one of the things I try to point out is that there is a self-interest in having a strong sense of identity. And that's what I thought about when I read the section in your book about a man named Trevor who is, you know, when you spoke to him, he was 41 and living in Tennessee. And he had a very strong sense of identity. Tell us a little bit about him, his story, and, and how it relates to all of this. Sure. I mean, that was kind of one of the one of the more remarkable moments of of the research for me is that um, I was doing focus groups about the Affordable Care Act with really, really medically ill white men uh, in rural Tennessee, and these were men who would have benefited from from healthcare, from healthcare reform, and. Again and again, I found that there were particular groups of working class white men who were not signing up for the Affordable Care Act, even though it would have helped them. And I would ask people, um, you know, here's this great new program. It's going to help you pay for your medications. It's going to give you access to more doctors and more treatments. Why aren't you signing up? And this this guy, Trevor, a guy in his 40s who was dying of, of liver problems, and he said, I know this problem would help me, but as he said, it ain't no way I'm signing up for a program that would benefit Mexicans and welfare queens. Um, this idea that basically what it means to be white is to literally not join into a social system, a social network that might benefit them, but it also put that it kind of leveled the playing field. And that notion was um, problematic and terrifying. And Trevor and many other uh, white men who I spoke with literally put their bodies on the line. They literally, I mean, many of my research subjects actually ended up passing away. Um, over the course of the couple of years of research rather than join into a network or a program that was started by a black president and that would have benefited people other than the people who they saw as in their group or in their tribe. And I think there are two ways
ways to understand that. One, of course, is um, how deep is this kind of embedded structural racism that people can't even imagine being uh, on the same playing field as other people? And, and when I would say, and I would kind of push further and ask them, well, why don't you sign up? And and they would say, well, ultimately the other issue is that I I really care about a Supreme Court judge who's going to overturn Roe versus Wade and let everybody carry firearms and stuff like that. So the other part of that story was these guys were the foot soldiers in a bigger ideological war that has led us to this moment. In other words, working class Republicans have been trained top to bottom about the importance of the court in implementing this idea of kind of a white Christian nation. And they really, really support it. I mean, many liberals are just waking up to this. So the other part of the Trevor story was this guy was willing to die um, for, for this bigger ideology that we're seeing play out in very real terms right now in the country. Yeah, and that brings us to the question of how the vacancy on the Supreme Court could potentially affect health care access. How do you um, parse the the potential there it's a catastrophe, really. I mean, the, the Affordable Care Act expanded Medicaid in many states. Um, the states that did embrace competitive insurance marketplaces, people in those states saw lower prescription drug costs, fewer medical bankruptcies. And I think another very important point in line of what we're talking about is that um, the Affordable Care Act also dramatically closed um, the racial gap in health insurance. Uh, when, when in 2009, for example, 34% of Latinx people in this country had no health insurance, 25% of African-American people. Um, and, and the Affordable Care Act cut those numbers in half, um, it, particularly in blue states. And so if all of that is overturned, we're going to see dramatic, dramatic rises in uninsurance, particularly in black and brown populations in blue states. And so it, th- th- that's part of the ideology. And everybody says, um, well, how are people voting against their own interests? But, it, but it, again, if you go back to the larger goal of maintaining this kind of racialized structure, overturning the Affordable Care Act in ways that targets blue states, because many red states didn't expand um, Medicaid, um, they're going to feel that this 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 blow quite a bit less. And so, in a way, it's just we're, we're looking at a, a kind of catastrophe that not only brings us back to the horrible insurance and healthcare landscape we had in 2009 and before, um, but it also does so at a time when we're much more vulnerable because we're going through a pandemic and an economic catastrophe. Dr. Jonathan Metzl, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much. You can find Our Body Politic wherever you listen to podcasts and at our website, farai.com slash OBP. You can also find a link there to leave us written feedback for our platform Speak. And you can call us. Leave a voicemail at 929-353-7006. That's 929-353-7006 to share with us what is the most important challenge you're dealing with now, Why is it the most important, and how are you dealing with it? We've been looking at every message that's come in. We've gotten some really lovely messages from people concerned about all the things we're talking about on the program. The risks of a recession, paying for health care premiums out of savings, child care, and politics. Keep sending us your thoughts. We'll incorporate them into the way we shape the show week to week. Thank you for calling in, and thanks so much for listening to Our Body Politic. Coming up later this hour, 
It was a picture of black women in wetsuits on a boat. And I looked and I saw that it was this group called Diving with a Purpose and that they dive for slave shipwrecks around the world. I'm Farai Chidea, and you're listening to Our Body Politic. We'll be right back. I'm Farai Chidea, and you're listening to Our Body Politic. This month marks two years since Saudi journalist Jamal Khashoggi was assassinated at the Saudi consulate in Turkey. A year ago, the Trump administration washed its hands of the issue, refusing to lay any blame on the Saudi crown prince, who the UN and the CIA both indicated is responsible. One person who worked closely with Khashoggi was Karen Atiyah. She's the global opinions editor at The Washington Post, where she published his columns critical of the Saudi regime. I reached out to Karen to ask her what she was thinking during this month's anniversary. I think that there's a spectrum of callousness towards human life that Jamal's gruesome murder fell into when it came to the Trump administration. It's not the only. We know, you know, we saw Charlottesville. We saw the very fine people. We see the nods and winks to white supremacists. All that is violence. So I think for me, as a not only as an editor, but also as a, as a Black woman, we're not afforded the luxury of being able to sugarcoat these violences in terms of economic anxiety or horse race politics. They see it as a disregard for life. Karen Atiyah continues to publish columns and green light stories from around the world. She also wrote a recent piece on how the pandemic is playing out in Africa. Uh, For me, sitting as uh, an editor at The Post, I also started just getting a whole lot of pitches and and stories and kind of warning calls about, oh my goodness, Africa is this ticking time bomb. If Africa can't control COVID, which inevitably, you know, it's going to hit Africa. If it can't control COVID, then the whole world is, basically the continent will fall apart and the whole world will have to pick up the pieces, right? And so... I was getting a lot of those pitches and stories and just doomsday scenarios for the continent. And in my head as, a, as an editor, I mean, I think it, it's, it was a, obviously it was appropriate to, to worry. Um, at the same time, I was like, let's, let's just see how things play out. And largely sub-Saharan Africa, for the most part, has avoided those doomsday scenarios. So for me, I think that's, it's been something on my mind. I mean, partially as a personal, you know, reason experiencing that, but that, but then also just thinking through, like we're seeing these headlines that are saying, well, yes, we're admitting yes, that Africa did not uh, hit that doomsday scenario, did not fall apart. Well, why is that? Maybe it's because of poverty as the BBC uh, intimated or, or implied. Um, or like, it's such a mystery. Why aren't the Africans dying like we thought that they would? And for me, I, I just wanted to use the piece to highlight um, just the examples of the, some countries that have had aggressive policy measures in place that have helped. But I think I just wanted to put out there that we have Black countries, African major- African countries that have been doing well and have been innovating and have been doing the right things as a public health 
response, right? Yeah, my my sister was trained um, as an officer in the CDC's epidemic intelligence service, you know, the the people like out the movie Outbreak, for those of us old enough to remember it. And she said that in um, one major ranking, the country that did the best COVID response was New Zealand, and number two was Senegal. And I was really struck by that. And so you also, you know, getting back to your point about media and portrayals, you, in your piece, cite a New York Post headline, scientists can't explain puzzling lack of coronavirus in Africa. And then you talk about a time you quoted a Kenyan anthropologist saying, quote, being a Black person in this world doesn't kill you, but being a Black person in America clearly can I was like, whoa, that's devastating. It's it's a devastating indictment. As someone who is a U.S.-born person of Ghanaian heritage, how do you process that sort of thing? Yeah, I mean, again, um, not that this has to hit close to home for, for one to understand the gravity of, of what we're living through a mass casualty event. It's a slow-moving mass casualty event on par even beyond the scale of the wars that America has participated in. Um, you know, as a, um, uh, just as a human being, I mean, we had to bury, um, a family friend of ours who was gone in. It's, it was just, I, I still kind of don't even have the, the words or, or the emotional <laughs> capacity sometimes to grasp the fact that, um, this Ghanaian family came over to the States. Um, the, the friend of ours, he served in the military for the U.S. The last time he and I talked, he, he talked about um, how joining the military helped him get a leg up in society. And then just a few months later, we were burying him in, in military uniform here in, here in Texas. I just think about my family, uh, this idea that you come to the U.S. because everything here is supposed to be better. Our healthcare systems are supposed to be better. Our opportunities are supposed to be better. You come to the U.S. and you're dealing with blood pressure issues. You're dealing with diabetes. You're dealing with these things that are now comorbidities for this this horrible virus. So I think I think we talk about it a lot in the media here, and we we use the words you know being black means you're you're disproportionately susceptible to medical racism, to these comorbidities, which are exacerbated by the inequalities in this system. And I think for me, it's sometimes reminding everyone or even myself that being Black shouldn't be or isn't automatically a death sentence. This coronavirus is an indictment on the systems that we're forced to live with in this country. It's an indictment of our governments. That was Karen Atia, Global Opinions Editor at The Washington Post. Most people don't think about COVID as having a lighter side, and usually it doesn't. But there's an exception to everything. And this time it comes from the experiences of Jareen Imam. Imam is a reporter with NBC News, and despite our whirlwind news cycle, she's found the time and energy to go on 40 dates over the course of the pandemic. We brought her on the show to ask her first, how? How does she stay safe and move past the texting or video chats phase to actual pandemic-era mask-to-mask dates? 
if um, they're kind of open about like who they've been interacting with and where they've done, then we do something that's like outdoors, such as a socially distanced walk. I've had picnics in the park. I can't tell you how many times I've seen Central Park. Like it is engraved in my mind. It's crazy. And, and we wear masks till we're like more than six feet apart and we feel comfortable and there's wind I feel comfortable taking the mask off. And if there's a chance where we get closer or something else happens, I'm I'm very adamant about taking COVID tests. And also um, there was a situation where I actually had to like ask someone for their results. <laughs> and they showed me on real time on their phone their negative results because uh, they were kind of sniffling and I got like a little freaked out. <laughs> I think we just have to, as women and as people, like, it's, we have to really, like, we're we're not, we're, like, protecting our bodies in a whole different way. And what about um, the joys, if there are any, of being independent? What are you finding out about yourself? I didn't think in this point in my life that I would be alone. I thought I would be married. I was in this long relationship. And I didn't really realize this, but when I first started seeing my ex eight years ago, I was a prolific painter. And when I started my relationship, I think I had invested so much time in trying to make it good that all these things that gave me fulfillment, painting, writing, creatively, even some kind of lame things like embroidery, all these things, I stopped doing them. And when I finally was totally alone physically, I started to make space for these things again. And I found this sense of like deep connection with this creative part of my brain that had kind of been neglected. And it was really comforting. And in some ways, like I actually do think I'm a lot happier and more content now that I've had some time to kind of get reacquainted with myself. Yeah. Yeah. I've been doing collages because I'm not particularly good at drawing and collage is something that I can do without any expectation that it has to be right. You know, it's just like I do it, I'm done, you know, and I relate to that part. Now, this is probably ridiculous in some ways, but this is a radio show. And people will be listening. So who are you looking for? Who is the one for you? The ability to share your mind with someone. That's the biggest thing that I have really navigated around and tried to find someone who's like my person. That was Jareen and Mom. Good luck, Jareen. There's a lot to weigh us down these days. Here are a few things to lift us up. The American Film Institute has announced the full lineup for this year's AFI Virtual Festival. Of the 124 titles, 53% are directed by women, 39% are directed by Black people and people of color, and 17% come from LGBTQ directors. HBO's adaptation of ta Coates' book, Between the World and Me, just expanded its cast list to include Angela Davis, Mahershala Ali, rapper T.I., and ta himself. The show will premiere next month, November 21st. 
Spike Lee can be seen on the cover of Variety magazine's New York issue this week. He talked to the publication about Chadwick Boseman and how he feels that the black and brown community in New York saved the city during the pandemic. Sorority sisters in the Divine Nine graced our social media feeds this week with photos of them strolling to the polls in style. Check them out on Twitter if you need some inspiration on how to be seen doing your civic duty. Last year, Tara Roberts, a writer and National Geographic explorer, discovered a new hobby, scuba diving. And it became so much more than a hobby. Tara joined a group of historians and archaeologists who dive for sunken slave ships around the world. And now she's creating a podcast all about it. We invited Tara on Our Body Politic to tell us how this emotionally and literally deep project got started. So I was living in D.C. at the time, and I happened to go to the African-American Museum. Um, And because I was living in D.C., I could really take my time in the museum. You know, that museum has so much in it. It takes forever. Um, So I think I was like maybe on my third visit. I went to the second floor, which is a floor that I think most people tend to skip because it's a small floor and just has a couple of things on it. But on that floor was this picture. Um, It was a picture of Black women in wetsuits on a boat, and they were hugging this guy, this Black guy. And I was like, what is that? Oh, my God. And I looked, and I saw that it was this group called Diving with a Purpose, and that they dive for slave shipwrecks around the world. And I was blown away by this. I was like, what? What? Um, and part of their part of their mission is to find their own history and tell their own story. And I didn't actually step into this as a diver. Like originally, I stepped in because I was just like, I just want to support them. And and then the founder and I became friends. He invited me to go get my scuba certification. And it was in that process. It was like a three month long process where we met with this group of amazing black folks. You know, they were engineers, lawyers, doctors, like they were just regular people who were volunteering their time to teach other black folks to scuba dive. So I learned more and more about it. I was like, these are incredible people and incredible stories. And I just knew I wanted to help tell that story. Yeah, and in the trailer for your work, you you explicitly bring up the question of whose frame we look at the past through. So yeah. what's the frame that you're using to tell the stories of the Slave Wrecks project? I love uh, the quote by Chimamanda, uh, the writer, who talks about the danger of a single story. And I think we've been living um, inside of a single story that's told by the quote unquote winners, the conquerors. It's told by the people who who say they won history and it doesn't include everyone. I've been following the divers for about a year and a half and I traveled to Senegal, Mozambique, South Africa, Costa Rica, St. Croix, and then throughout the US. There are distinct different stories in all of those places. The transatlantic slave trade was a global trade that had impact throughout the Americas Europe and Africa. So there are so many stories to be told about this. And most of them are just missing from history. Yeah, you know, 
One of the things, one of the many things I think about is, um, in addition to who gets to tell the story of history, is like the the liberation of travel. So what has travel taught you, um, not just about the transatlantic slave trade or about the world or about history, but about yourself? So I, and I've traveled throughout the continent before this journey, but I don't think it was until this journey that I saw, and now I put Africa in quotes, because I really don't know what it means to say Africa. You know, it's a continent full of 54 countries. So thinking that it is this one thing is insane. And I think even though I knew that, there was something about approaching the continent on this journey where I'm looking for my roots, like actively thinking about ancestors and roots, where all of this hit me in a completely different way. I think most African Americans think that our history started inside of trauma and pain. It started on these boats in horror, but our history does not start there. That's just one stop point in a long history that we don't know and that we must know in order to to understand ourselves and to understand how powerful and big we are. You are someone who is an adventurer. Did you expect to have a life like this? Did little Tara, little girl Tara, think that this was possible? I will not lie. Um, And I will say yes. (laughs) Because little Tara, even though I grew up in Atlanta, in the quote-unquote hood with my single mother, I had access to books. And I read ferociously. Um, I love fantasy books. And I love to imagine myself bigger and greater. And I knew that there was more to the world than just what I was seeing. So that's one thing that we all have access to, um, our books, which stoke the imagination and which can tell you that there's more, there's more out there (laughs) sometimes than what you just see. So yes, I always (laughs) imagine more. (laughs) I love that. Well, I am so thrilled to follow you into the depths. Tara, it's great to talk again. Thank you so much. Thanks for I. That's Tara Roberts. Her podcast is slated to come out next year. You can find more information at storiesfromthedepths.com and on Instagram at storiesfromthedepths. Thank you for joining us on Our Body Politic this week. Know that we wish you and yours well in these trying times. Voter registration deadlines are coming up in some areas and in others, early voting is already in full swing. So if you can, get your vote on. We'll be on the air and everywhere you listen to podcasts each week. This is Our Body Politic. I'm the creator and host, Farai Chidea. Our Body Politic is presented and syndicated by KCRW, KPCC, and KQED. It is produced by Lantigua Williams & Co. Juleka Lantigua Williams is executive producer. Paulina Velasco is senior producer. Cedric Wilson is lead producer and mixed this episode. Original music by Kojin Tashiro. Michelle Baker and Emily Daly are assistant producers. Production assistants from Mark Betancourt, Virginia Laura, Kat Hernandez, and Dinesh Matani. Funding for Our Body Politic is provided by Craig Newmark Philanthropies and by the Jonathan Logan Family Foundation, empowering world-changing work.